you know, I tried a consultant. I didn't see a consultant I wanted to be like. Then I tried something else. I didn't see what I wanted to be like. And I kept iterating until I really found my dream job. And I really found this, this career that generates so much energy for me. Every time, I, you know, I think about work all the time because it brings so much joy to my life. You know, it motivates me. And so people ask, you know, how do you manage three kids and you know, this highly demanding career and your family and, you know, I travel all the time. And it's because what I do makes me so much better at being a parent, you know, at being a spouse. Hello and welcome back to the Arena Podcast by Kaufman Fellows, where we dive deep into the stories of some of the most fabled names in VC. I'm your producer, Nihar Nilakanti, and this podcast is hosted by Jeff Harbach, CEO of Kaufman Fellows. Joining us in this week's episode is Christine Kenna, a partner at Ignea and a Kaufman Fellow from Class 23. We can't wait to share her story with you, so let's get right to it. All right, welcome back to the Coffin Fellows podcast. We are in the arena today with Christine Kenna from Ignea. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. We are so pumped to have you. Christine is a Coffin Fellow from Class 23. And Christine, why don't we talk, let's just start off with what you're doing at Ignea and kind of tell us a little bit about your, your current role. Right. So Ignea is the most active and largest venture capital fund in Mexico. I'm a partner at Ignea, and we're investing in all kinds of incredible entrepreneurs that are creating fabulous companies, bringing better goods and services to the emerging middle class in Mexico. It's an incredible organization, certainly very well known in Mexico. Tell us about some of the things, uh, you know, you joined there back in 2011. What, what made you want to join Ignea, and what's the journey been like being there from 2011 to now? Right. Well, I can certainly say that I never imagined I'd be working in venture capital. And when I joined Igni originally, I was drawn by the enormous potential to have impact in the region and by the the real, uh, you know, catalytic impact that this fund was having in all of the entrepreneurs that they were working with. Uh, I was mostly focused on building companies, and that's what initially drew me to join Ignea. You know, I could have never, uh, you know, envisioned this career becoming partner, now having raised fund two, uh, but it was something that was very exciting. Every day was different. Every day was more challenging. And uh, what I was most driven by was working with the entrepreneurs, you know, helping them build these amazing companies, solving really hard problems, trying to get them to scale their businesses in uh, really an environment, a culture where they had never seen anything like any of these innovative companies. And what's the what's Ignea's investment focus and maybe your particular investment focus too? What are some of the areas that get you really excited? Right. So Ignea, we typically look to invest in Series A, so early stage businesses. Uh, we are sector agnostic, primarily B2C, because really the consumer at the end of the day in Mexico is the segment of the population that is highly underserved. They pay the highest prices for the worst service. And so that's where we see the greatest opportunity. There are enormous blue ocean markets in Latin America, and particularly we see in Mexico. It's you know, one of the most connected societies that exists globally. 
you know, it has it, across the region, Latin America, 100 million more internet users than the United States. Wow. You know, it's uh, everyone has a smartphone in their hand. So right now is a time when technology is able to disrupt and and create many solutions to those uh, pain points that we're seeing right now in, that exist in Latin America. They're lucky to have you. Uh, let's. So we're going to come back and talk a little bit about Ignea. But as we do in the arena, we want to go back to what made Christine, Christine. And so let's start off by telling us a little bit about your parents. We'd love to hear, and I'd love to have you tell your story about both your mother and your father, and give us a little bit of, of the formative experiences that made you who you are today. So first, where were you born? Tell us about your parents. Right. So I was born in Wilmington, Delaware, which is a great state to be incorporated in. Um, but I really grew up in California. So I moved to California as a kindergartner and grew up in Atherton, uh, you know, right next to Palo Alto. And I was very lucky to be in this incredibly beautiful place. And, you know, my dad first came out to Menlo Park when he was in college and just felt that he had found paradise and found a very unlikely match in my mom, who was a Cuban exile. And uh, they met while my dad was getting ready to go over to Vietnam. I think a very formative part of my dad's life is the fact that he'd served in the military. And a very formative part of my mom's life is that she accompanied my dad through that process and then went on to you know, have three children and dedicate her life to building this amazing family. And you know, while we were young kids, my mom decided to go back to school and get her PhD at Stanford. You know, certainly not an easy feat. Uh, while she managed a full household with very little help and supported my dad's career, she uh, followed her real passion, which was working with students. And she ended up having a role at Stanford that was so appreciated by the, the students studying Spanish literature there that she'd been given multiple awards as a majors and minor uh, advisor. And um, managed to do this all in her free time, you know, which I knew she had very little little time uh, in the process. And uh, you know, I can say that I, I learned by seeing her continuous dedication to building others. You know, my mom, uh, every day after school, we would be picked up and dragged onto Stanford's campus, where I spent a lot of time in Stanford's library. Uh, we had, you know, many of her students as babysitters, and I could see how much. You know, she was inspired by helping her students learn and, and do amazing things with their lives. Uh, so without a doubt, my mom's influence was extremely important in, in, in me. Um, and my dad as well. My dad was someone who uh, was focused on creating the best lives for his children and providing stability for us. You know, uh, you could call my dad an entrepreneur uh, because at you know, a young age, he decided he wanted to run his own business. So he spent his career building a successful company, but really so that he could be home every night with us and have a dinner as a family and uh, and and really provide everything that we needed. Um, I think another major influence was that I was raised with two older brothers. They're twins, a year and a half older. And we were all raised together. You know, it was the fact that, you know, 
I never considered myself a girl in this family. We were all doing everything at once. We were very focused on sports, and there was never any limitation in what I could or could not be doing, right? Um, so that was a major influence. Uh, I was a very, uh, you know, constantly active in something or the other, uh, soccer, tennis, and then eventually track, which became very formative later in my life as well. It's been said that successful families have dinner together regularly. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? From Were you good at and was your family good at having dinner as a family every single night or multiple nights a week? That was the one constant in my family every night. Amazing. You know, my uh, parents made sure that every night at 7 p.m. we all gathered around the table and it was a series of heated debates and it was a safe place for us all to gather and talk about what was going on in our lives. Such an important impact. I'm so grateful to your parents that they set that example for you and for your brothers. Um, One of the things that I think really defines, one of the words that would define you to me is tenacity. And as I hear you talk about your story and your mother specifically, I think you you learned tenacity from her. Mm -hmm. She's just a resilient, incredible, incredible individual. She came from, she she wasn't born here. Tell us about her story. Yeah. So I think my mom is this really exceptional woman. She's one of these unsung heroes, I think, in, in our entire family and everyone who's known her. Uh, my mom was a, left Cuba as a young teenager, um, very much uh, as an opportunity that her parents saw for her to have a better life. It was a time when uh, she was able to get a visa from the Catholic Church as an unaccompanied minor to leave Cuba uh, when she was being sent off to be uh, re-educated in Russia. And when she came to the United States and realized that she wasn't going back, she decided she wanted to become the best American that she could be, right? And with that decision, she chose to raise us as American children. You know, she did not teach us Spanish as a child uh, and never really spoke about her Cuban background which was something that I didn't realize until many years later, but that was such a part of her that even though she tried to cover it up, she simply couldn't. It came out in her exuberant hugs and kisses that anyone who knows my mom knows she's full of energy and she makes you feel welcome and warm and she's always taking care of others. And so this part of her When I started getting to know the Latin American culture and had the chance to travel back to Cuba and get to know Mexico and the rest of Latin America, I realized it was something so core and fundamental in that culture that is something that was, you know, part of me without even knowing it. And when, so see, then you went back to Cuba when you were 25, 26 years old. But actually before that, tell us, you took a trip to, a mission trip when you were, what, 16, 17 years old. Tell us about that. And yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up with this um, in this wonderful community in Northern California and um, frankly, uh, was had never really been exposed to poverty in any in any level at that point in my life. And I went down to Mexicali. We drove down. And I remember as we were crossing the border from San Diego into Mexico, it was such a stark contrast of just extreme wealth and extreme poverty. And we went into Mexicali and we were really working with different communities to listen to, tell their stories, and work with them. 
I served as a translator for my high school friends, which was such a fundamental role for me because I was the one telling the stories of these families. You know, they were living in, uh, you know, very small homes with dirt floors. Uh, and the first thing you could see was that they were happy. You know, they had nothing, but there was so much joy in their lives. Our primary role was to get to know them and play with their children, right? And I could be that, that link between my you know, American friends and these Mexican families that I realized that I actually had a, a great purpose and that I could be extremely useful by understanding their culture and trying to bridge those, those two communities. Uh, so that was my first realization of what real world is outside of my bubble in California. I love that. So what an impactful experience. And, you know, I've taken my children to on these types of trips as well. And I heard somebody say this. I said the same thing you did, which is you see that these individuals have nothing, yet it feels like they have everything. Yeah. And the response that I got was to start with the premise that they have nothing is a false premise because mm-hmm. we're, we're basing that based on the things that we know and the, and the stuff that we have. Really, they have everything. And right. we learn so much from them. Absolutely. Amazing uh, experience. Okay, so now fast forward. You went to Duke undergrad. Right. Uh, you went to HBS, uh, Harvard Business School, for your MBA. What was that like from going from living on East Coast, West Coast, now going back to Harvard Business School? Right. Well, Duke was definitely one of the dreams I had as a child. Uh, it was sort of the Stanford, but on the East Coast. And, uh, you know, it was also such a phenomenal place to just grow up and, and sort of discover what the world was about. I think one of the most formative experiences for me at Duke was the fact that I ran track. And, you know, I can say it was never a very good runner, uh, but I was good enough to get on the team. And, and that was really because of my dad. And he was the one who said, you know, don't look, don't think about everything that you're not. Think about everything that you can be. And so he's the one who encouraged me. He's like, go talk to the coach right? Go talk to the coach and sit down and show him what you're made of. And I was this skinny, you know, long-legged white girl, and I was competing in a Division One league with some of the best runners in the world, right? And I remember getting on that track scared out of my mind and working my ass off, <laughs> you know? And I ran 400-meter hurdles, which is, I think it's just probably one of the most painful races you can run. And I learned more about myself and my tenacity and what I was capable of on the track than I ever learned in any class or or outside of that. And, you know, we were never going to win the races, Uh, you know, especially Duke competing against, you know, all of these phenomenal schools and athletes, uh, you know, who'd go on to the Olympics. Uh, But I remember every time we get on on the track and I'd be sitting in the blocks and I'd just be thinking to myself, like, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, and put everything into it, you know, run through any sort of pain. And it was all about getting my personal best, right? And, And that's what I realized. What mattered was how I was going to measure myself based on what I wanted to achieve and what I knew was possible, Right. And so that was so formative to my to my future career, especially because I think so much of what we do today. And I think I am, you know, very much um, to to what my partners would love to say. You know, I am the eternal optimist. I think that's something that's fundamental in what we do. I'm optimistic to a fault. Right. But um, I think I got that by really just, you know, Every day, showing up on the track, showing up at these meets, you know, knowing that I, knowing that I might actually come in last, 
but that it was still important to show up. So uh, that was Duke. Um, I could say, you know, I certainly didn't know what I wanted to major in. Uh, I just loved learning. I loved all my classes. So I really stumbled onto my major, which was economics, my sophomore year when I took an intro to economics class and I just felt like this was the most fascinating topic in the world, you know? And so I ended up graduating with a triple major in economics, comparative area studies, which is sort of like an international relations or for kids just they couldn't focus, and Spanish literature. Triple major. Yeah. Uh, and then Harvard Business School was uh, also just sort of this goal that I had in life because my dad had gone there. And my dad spoke so highly of his Harvard classmates. And, you know, it was it was something that I knew that if I could do it, I would have achieved or accomplished something. You know, and, but frankly, I never thought about my life post-business school. So Christine and Coffinfell, as we talk a lot about inflection points, tell us about some of the inflection points that you've gone through in your life. Right. Well, I think inflection points are interesting because you never see them coming. And that is certainly what happened in my career. I would say one of the first major inflection points is when I decided to put off business school for a year and stay in Mexico to really build this impossible organization in Mexico City, which was to build the Guggenheim Foundation's operations from the ground up where we had to form a board of directors, we had to uh, fundraise entirely from, from zero and uh, get these programs up and running. You know, I was 24 at the time, I was given an enormous amount of responsibility, I had no idea what I was doing, and I could barely pay for my own food. And what was so important in my career is that I discovered what was my true motivation, which was having impact in others and building communities. And that came out through this incredibly difficult but incredibly satisfying work, working with street children in Mexico City and seeing the impact that we could have in their lives by giving them access to uh, mentors, self-esteem, uh, art supplies to help them develop as individuals and to feel valued. This was also very impactful in my life because I was able to get to know Mexico and see the sharp contrast that exists in the Mexican society, where I was taking some of the wealthiest individuals in the world with their bulletproof cars and their bodyguards into the slums of Mexico City, where I could introduce them to these incredibly beautiful children who needed their help. And at that moment is also when I discovered that I needed to learn how to run for-profit social enterprises to really have sustainable long-term impact because it was simply too difficult to convince people with money that they should donate and give away their money to help others. And the solution that I found at the Guggenheim Foundation was actually to run for-profit enterprises to maintain their financing long-term. So with that purpose, I went to business school. And at business school, I had another major inflection point because as a typical Harvard Business School student, you stay for two years. Yet the summer between my first and second year, because of a dear friend, Marnie Levine, who introduced me to Sheryl Sandberg at Google, I was able to spend my summer there. I love the work. 
At the same time, I married my husband, who was living in France. At the end of the summer, Cheryl Somberg sat down with me and said, you know, what are your plans for the future? And I explained my personal situation. And she said, well, why don't you go help us grow the Paris office? You know, why don't you take a year off business school, be with your family? For me to hear that advice from someone who I admired and, and respected so much, and she'd given me permission to put my family first at that critical point in my life. You know, my husband was much more mature about this situation than I was, and he was like, of course, Harvard will let you take the year off. And so that's what I did. And the year we spent together in France was one of not only the best in, of our lives and, and in terms of building our marriage and the foundation of our family, but also professionally, right? I got to dive into an entirely new uh, region. I got to learn French. You know, I really uh, put myself out in incredibly uncomfortable situations. And then I went back to business school and finished, you know, and was able to go on my expected path. Right. Um, I think another major inflection point was when I discovered uh, when I uh, let me go back. Another major inflection point was when I discovered Ignea for the first time. You know, after business school, I had dedicated my time to really learning how to operate and run businesses through an education company called EF, where I was focused on building teams, learning how to market and sell products and build new cultures and when I was on maternity leave with my second son, I met with a mentor of mine, Rosalind Payne, who happened to be an investor in Ignea. And she was talking through my options with me and reintroduced me to the co-founders of Ignea, one of whom is Michael Chu, who's a professor at HBS that I'd met, and the other is Alvaro Rodriguez. When they told me about the work that Ignea was doing, I literally could not sit still in my seat. I was so excited about the prospect of working and doing the work that Igni was doing. I felt like I just wanted to jump in and do it for free. It's like, this is what I think about on the weekends and late nights. And I couldn't believe that I could actually have a career helping entrepreneurs grow their businesses in Latin America, right? I mean, I'd always heard about venture capital, but I absolutely never thought it was a career for me. So for a number of reasons, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, I always saw the old white men uh, focused on getting rich. And for me, that was a definition of what a venture capitalist did. And what I saw in Ignea was actually a group of individuals who were trying to create amazing, game-changing new innovations and building businesses and building people. And that is what got me so excited. It was about having an impact in community which is what I knew was fundamental and core to what gets me excited and what gives me energy. And, and really, since that moment, I have not stopped being excited about what we do every day. You know, every day is different. And, um, and, and it, was, it was such a game-changing moment in my life. Um, so what else was I going to say about um, when, I, when I discovered this moment? Um, the other thing, another reason why I never saw myself as a venture capitalist was uh, a moment at Harvard Business School, I attended one of these VC panels, and I heard a woman raise her hand and ask a question saying that she was interested in getting into venture capital and if one of these venture capitalists had any advice for her about how to do that. And one VC replied, don't try, 
you're not welcome. You know, it was clear to me that, okay, check, I'm not welcome. You know, why bother even looking at this industry where nobody wants me because I'm a woman, right? Uh, of course, that had, you know, great uproar at Harvard's campus and the time and the moment, but that was it. You know, it didn't go beyond that. Uh, so, you know, that was in, that was, uh, in, in 2003, I believe, and, you know, I really didn't discover Igni until 2011. It makes me think about what your dad told you, which is don't think about everything you're not. Think about everything you can be. And you certainly mm -hmm. did that. Now you've become the first female VC in Mexico. You're the first female board member of the Venture Capital Association in Mexico. You've founded multiple groups focusing on women's issues. Tell us about, obviously that's become a passion for you based on your formative experiences, but right. tell us about what you're doing with those things now and why that's so important to you. Right. I think the most important part of that is that why is it so important to me? And I think uh, my initial reason to start these organizations was out of pure need. When I arrived in Mexico, I found this society that was incredibly welcoming to me. Uh, I have a wonderful Mexican family that sort of showed me the ins and outs of how things were done in Latin America. But I had very few colleagues who were women who were also striving to have successful careers and also raising families at the same time. So I really got together and started forming my tribe of women. And these friends have been so core to my success. And I think we all uh, feed off each other. We all encourage each other to be better, to be brighter, uh, to be smarter. And, you know, I first started that when I got to Mexico through a group called MBA Mujeres de Mexico. And now we have over 500 women who are at all different levels of their career. And then when I entered VC and I realized that there were even fewer women in this industry, and this is, uh, is our success as an investor is really based on our network and realizing that in Latin America, men and women fundamentally interact in a different way. And we build networks in a different way. And so this became my competitive advantage, was really working with the female entrepreneurs, working with the other female investors, and realizing that we needed to create these, these stronger links. You know, I can also say that, thinking back on my life, I've had some very formative moments of incredible mentors, who many of whom I don't even think know how much impact they had in my life. You know, one of, one of these women was uh, named Robin Burns. When I was 20 years old, she took a few phone calls with me and sat down with me to talk about uh, all the great careers that I could have after school. And she was, at the time, CEO of Estee Lauder. She'd been CEO of Calvin Klein. And she went on to open Victoria's Secret's beauty line. You know, and this is a woman who took the time to believe in me and, and tell me that I was smart and that I could do anything I wanted to do. You know, later on, I met a woman named Pat House through my mother, who had been her teacher at Stanford. And Pat was one of the co-founders of Siebel Systems here. And Pat is this amazing woman who just builds everyone around her and makes them feel fabulous. And she's a marketer and a salesperson, and she showed me how to sell myself. She showed me that it was okay to create a story, and she painted the picture of my future that I never dreamed was possible. And you know, to this day, she continues to be generous with her time and help guide me through those hard decisions. You know, then there are women like Joanna Bloor, who helped me put words 
into my story and gave me permission to also talk about what I was passionate about and help build others in the process. And then finally, I would say my real mentor, mentor, if you want to use the word in sort of a more formal sense, was now uh, was one of my partners, Leon Craig. And I would say it was the first male mentor I've had in my life, but he invested the time in listening to me and then teaching me and really showing me how to do this business. He really showed the value of investing in people, investing in teams, and, and also being authentic. You know, he you know, constantly shares the highlights and lowlights in his daily life and celebrates his family publicly in front of others, which is something that has allowed me to really become who I am and feel comfortable you know, to bring my whole self to the table every time I'm working with an entrepreneur that I can talk about my failures, you know, my successes, um, my family, my children, you know, the things that I'm struggling with in my life as well. I, I absolutely love it. Christine, some that you've talked about some of the influences in your life. You've talked about Robin and Pat and Joanna and Leon. Um, I know that your brothers were also a big influence in your life. Tell us really quickly about that. Absolutely. My twin brothers are my best friends, my most honest feedback loops, you know, confidence in life. And most importantly, we grew up together where they never made me feel like a girl. You know, I grew up in a ponytail and shorts and was able to ski as fast as they could and play as hard as they could. You know, I was, you know, on par in all the games and they were encouraging me every step of the way. So it was, uh, you know, they continue to be a major influence in my life and an inspiration to constantly be, be a better person because, you know, they tell me as they see it, there's, there's no sugarcoating from anything that comes from your brothers. So uh, absolutely. The thing I love about your story, Christine, is the impact that a supportive and involved family has had in your life. That's just right. so, so, so important. Coffin Fellows, what role has Coffin Fellows played in this journey, this amazing journey that you've had? Coffin Fellows, for me, is my own personal Disneyland as an adult. When I realized that I was committed to a career in venture capital, I realized also how much I didn't know about the industry and how much work we had to do to build the best venture capital fund in Mexico and how far we could still go in Latin America. And I needed help to do that. And so when I discovered that I actually could do Coffin Fellows, I had the same level of excitement when I first discovered that IGNI existed, you know, that continues to this day. You know, I had first heard about Kaufman Fellows many years ago, uh, and I never took it seriously for myself until I decided I wanted to be a partner at Ignea. And my husband asked me when I turned 40, you know, do you have any regrets in your life? And the one thing I answered him was that I wish I'd really done Kaufman Fellows, yet I'd felt too old. And he said, go talk to them. <laughs> What's keeping you back? And then I really discovered what the program was all about. And then I discovered that this is the right time for me to really accelerate my career. And since then, I have met so many incredible peers that 
push me to think and be better. And I just feel like a kid in a candy shop. You know, we can talk shop all day, all night. And, you know, they help me solve problems, be better. They inspire me. And uh, it is just a constant source of energy. So I'm so thankful to meet all of these fellows. And it's exciting that there's so many more people to continue to meet, you know, through, through the Coffin Network. Christine, it's so fun to kind of take all the different formative experiences that you've had and tie, you know, put those dots together in your life to what you've become and what you are doing today for the Mexican entrepreneurs, the Mexican ecosystem, and the Latin American ecosystem. We're so proud to have you as a Coffin Fellow. What is the one piece of advice that you would give to anybody that is trying to forge a path, maybe like that young Christine that was thinking, I don't think there's a possibility for me to be in venture capital, or that maybe that young Christine that was didn't think that she could be on the track team, or what, what advice would you give to anybody listening to this podcast that wants to go and realize their dreams as well? Yeah, I really think it all comes down to authenticity and to really go after being and discovering your authentic self. You know, when I think about what I would have told myself as a young girl, it was just, you don't have to be perfect. You know, my life is full of turns and unexpected twists and failures and so many lessons that I wish that I had just felt much more okay to to make those mistakes and understand that that's all part of the, the process and the journey to be where I am today. Something that I think is so important and, and one of the major reasons why I do what I do today and especially why I'm so focused on helping invest in women is because I have a daughter. And I grew up believing that I could be anything I wanted to be and that it was all about my work ethic and it was up to me to discover my future. And now I'm raising a daughter in a society where they put a lot of emphasis on girls' appearances and a lot of emphasis on, you know, on, on, on looking pretty. And I certainly was not raised that way. And I want my daughter and all of her friends to know that what really matters is what's in their mind and what they're able to accomplish and achieve in their life that has nothing to do with their physical appearance. And I strongly believe in, in the saying, they say you have to see what you want to be. You know, and as I talk about these influences in my life at these critical moments, I had very amazing female role models that helped me envision the future that I wanted to have. And I kept iterating my career. You know, I tried a consultant. I didn't see a consultant I wanted to be like. Then I tried something else. I didn't see what I wanted to be like. And I kept iterating until I really found my dream job. And I really found this, this career that generates so much energy for me. Every time, I, you know, I think about work all the time because it brings so much joy to my life. You know, it motivates me. And so... People ask, you know, how do you manage three kids and you know, this highly demanding career and your family and, you know, I travel all the time. And it's because what I do makes me so much better at being a parent, you know, at being a spouse. And, you know, all of these different aspects of my life now are very interlinked. You know, I don't think I could separate, you know, being a parent to, from being an investor, because I'm very honest with my entrepreneurs also about the challenges that I'm facing and, and the lessons I learned through my children uh, with them, you know, and the struggles that I'm facing help them also have that permission to, to be 
their whole selves in their job as well. In fact, your partner gave you that advice after you had your third child. Uh, when you came back to work, what did he say to you? So this was very surprising. But when I came back from my from my maternity leave, my partner said, we've never seen you more centered and more certain of your investment decisions. And you seem to be a much better venture capitalist as a mom of three than ever before. And I think that was entirely true. You know, you have to learn to be more efficient. You have to feel comfortable with the uncertainty and just go with it, right? Um, I think it's part of just, just you know, figuring yourself out and, and, and feeling comfortable in your skin. You know, and I stopped apologizing for who I was not and really leaning into my strengths. And I think that's something that's very important. Whereas now it's a point where I can, you know, I talk about a lot of these challenges that I face as a mother, you know, and, you know, we, we laugh about this now, but I had one of my most uh, embarrassing moments publicly recently when I was asked to give a talk at Duke University. And it happened to be in the date when I'd planned a trip with my eight-year-old son. And I, and I asked Duke if I could bring him along because that's the only way I could attend the conference. They were very supportive. They gave us babysitters, the whole thing. And right before I got on stage, my son comes up and sits in the chair to try it out. And they mic me up. And it's time to start the conference. I get on stage. The lights are on. And I ask my son very nicely, mi amor, it's time to start. You know, jump back in your seat. And he looks at me and says, no, mom. I like it right here. And publicly, totally defies me. And, you know, I'm mic'd up. I can't offer any of my death threats or, you know, iPad bribery. And so he stays on stage. And they start the conference. And the person I was talking with was very cool about it and just jumps right into it. You know, about halfway through this 45-minute talk, my son is upside down on his chair, feet in the air, you know, doing somersaults on stage. You know, and I'm a working mom. I'm used to this. You know, I'm pretty good at ignoring my son when I have to, you know, and, and focusing on the point. And, you know, when the conference ended, I realized this was all over social media. And it was so embarrassing to me to realize, you know, this was for me internally. I was having this meltdown. You know, this was not my perfect persona. You know, for me, this was a failed, you know, parenting moment. But the reaction I received from the public was absolutely the most supportive feedback I've ever received from any public public engagement. You know, I received so many emails from people cheering me on and saying, "Thanks for showing that." I had entrepreneurs writing me and saying, "We want to talk with you." You know, we saw this on on Twitter. You know what happened? And, you know, the next morning after that conference, I had a call with my partners, and I told them what had happened, and I was so embarrassed. I was hoping they just hadn't heard about it or seen it. And, you know, the second my partners heard it, they're like, this is awesome, Christine. You know, you have to share this story. And so I think it's, you know, the point in my life where actually sharing these stories, showing the truth of what it's like, you know, those hard moments of being a parent and being an investor and, and all of that, I, I hope are encouraging to others to also show that, you know, like that we're, we're people, you know, this isn't easy. You know, what we're trying to do is really, really hard, right? And, uh, and I think being a parent is one of the most important and challenging jobs we have, but it's also one of the most uncertain jobs we have. You know, just like VC, there are long feedback loops, right? You don't know if you're doing a good job until the very end. So... Christine, you are an inspiration to me and an inspiration to the Coffin Fellows. And thank you so much for joining us in the arena today. Thank you, Jeff.
Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the Arena Podcast. As always, you can get notified of the latest release by subscribing to our newsletter found in the description of this episode or by visiting fellows.org. That's all for now. We'll catch you in the arena next week. Thank you.